Welcome to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast, where we talk to computer scientists who immigrated from their home countries for study or for work or for other reasons. In these oral history interviews, you will find established and renowned computer scientists from across academia and industry narrating their experiences of immigrating from where they grew up to a completely different land, often the US. My name is Indy Gupta, and I'm your host. This is episode 36, the finale of season two of the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast. Today's episode is unlike the others we have had on this show. Today's episode has four acts. Acts one and two are some of my own personal thoughts and reflections on two events that occurred recently. Act three is a less well-known story of native code talkers during World War I and World War II. The last act, Act 4, is an anonymized story of a true person. As usual, you can find all episodes and detailed episode guides on our website, csimmigrant.org. Again, that's csimmigrant.org. And you can find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is structured into acts or chapters. You'll find chapter markers on your audio player, and you can use these to jump between the acts or chapters. Here we go. Act 1. Hate Mail My role as podcast host in the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast is that of a historian. My guests' words and opinions and stories are their own. Yet, in this act, I would like to take an opportunity to express a personal opinion of mine. During the middle of season two, this past spring, in the early days of the Ukraine-Russia conflict, this podcast received its first hate mail. It came from a person I have known for years. The gist of the email said I should back off from doing the podcast and advertising the podcast's messages. The litany of reasons ranged from the Ukraine-Russia war events being too dominant in the news, that some countries, including where some of my own guests had come from, were countries that were not publicly opposed to Russia in the war, and that it was all just too overwhelming. Of course, I did not respond to the hate mail. Yet, if you have listened to even a few episodes of the podcast, you would have realized that it is unfortunately a fact that wars have been a part of the life of many computer scientists, whether or not you are prominent. But we computer scientists usually don't talk about this part of our lives. For instance, my guests discuss their experiences of living through wars from the US bombing of Serbia in episodes 1 through 4, to wars in Lebanon, Israel and Egypt from both sides of the conflict in episodes 9 through 12 and then 27 through 29, to living under dictatorships in episodes 5 through 9, episodes 31 through 33 and episode 35. The Ukraine-Russia war has been horrible and continues to be horrible. But that is no reason to stop talking about the experiences of immigrants who grew up in difficult times and in difficult circumstances amidst wars and went on to have successful lives and professional careers. There is no good time to discuss immigrant experiences 
and there is no bad time to discuss immigrant experiences. They need to be discussed all the time. Doing the interviews in this podcast, 36 episodes so far, counting this one, and the nearly 30 guests, 5 continents, and about 13 countries we have visited, has been both a joyous experience for me, and also an emotional experience. We already know many of the guests who have appeared on the podcast for their excellent work in the research community and in industry, and we already know their professional side. Many of you listeners will already have known our guests before you heard the podcast. My guests have been gracious enough to let down their vulnerabilities and talk about their personal stories of upbringing and of growth, and in many cases, the very difficult and unstable circumstances that they grew up in. These stories contrast significantly with the relative stability that many Americans face in their schooling system and college system inside the United States. That has been one of the goals of the podcast, to bring in immigrant experiences so that this contrast to life here in the U.S. reveals itself to the listeners of this podcast. The entire world is not the U.S. Every country is different and every one of the immigrants that we have talked to on this podcast and every one of you immigrants out there has a very unique and personal story to tell. This is episode 36 of the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast, and it's the season finale of season two of the podcast. Act two, words matter, language matters. Recently, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson was confirmed as a justice for the Supreme Court of the United States, the first black woman to be confirmed to the Supreme Court. Like many of you, I watched the confirmation hearings for Judge Jackson. One of the segments that caught my attention was a short description of Judge Jackson's conscious choice of words when describing immigrants in the U.S. This description was spoken by Senator Alex Padilla, the senator from California. Alex himself is a child of immigrants, originally from Mexico, and Alex Padilla has a degree in mechanical engineering from MIT, which he earned in 1994. During the Judiciary Committee hearing of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, Senator Alex Padilla said the following to the judge. Quote, What stood out to me is that you avoided making the same choice as many of your colleagues. When not quoting statutes or precedents, your opinions appeared not to refer to immigrants as alien or illegal, instead using terms such as undocumented and non-citizen. I imagine that was a conscious choice by you. The language which we use and the language which our courts use to describe people, whether immigrants or formerly incarcerated individuals, LGBTQ individuals, and Native Americans, or other historically marginalized people, really matters a great deal. All language matters. It's why last year, President Biden ordered the Customs and Border Protection Agency and ICE to stop referring to migrants as illegal immigrants. End quote. 
Words matter. Language matters. You're listening to the season two finale of the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast. Act three, the code talkers. This segment borrows heavily from the panels at the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. and the National World War II Museum in New Orleans, as well as the code talker display at the Burger King, yes, that's Burger King, in Cayenta, Arizona, a few miles from the Monument Valley. Many of us know that before the European settlers arrived in North America, there were a variety of Native American tribes, now called as American Indian tribes. These tribes were then spread throughout the North American continent, each with their own language and their own rich culture. The expansion of the European settlements caused a massive upheaval among these tribes, betrayal by businessmen and government entities, and numerous deaths along multiple trails of tears. These American Indians and their tribes were forced to migrate from lands where they had been for centuries to a completely different land and climate. These tribes essentially had to choose between keeping their land or keeping their families together. They chose the latter. Many died along the way during these migrations. Yet, one of the less well-known facts is that many American Indians contributed to some of the earliest cryptographic systems that were used by the U.S. military. These were before the days of the first computers, before even vacuum tube computers were developed. During World War I and then World War II, hundreds of Native American servicemen from more than 20 tribes used their indigenous languages to send secret coded messages that enemies could never break. Known as the Code Talkers, these men helped U.S. forces achieve military victory in some of the greatest battles of the 20th century. During World War I, Code Talkers used tribal languages to transmit messages that German eavesdroppers found impossible to decipher. These U.S. Army personnel included Choctaw, Ho-Chunks, Eastern Cherokees, Comanches, Cheyennes, Yankton Sioux, and Osages. The Code Talkers of 1918, World War I, made a lasting impression on the U.S. military. During World War II, in 1940 and 1941, the Army then recruited Comanche, Meskwaki, Chippewa, and Oneida language speakers to train as Code Talkers. They later added eight Hopi speakers. In April 1942, at the height of the Second World War, the Marine Corps trained 29 Navajo men in combat and radio communications. They went on to serve as a foundation of the largest code-talking program in the U.S. military. Eventually, about 534 American Indian code-talkers were deployed during the Second World War. The U.S. Marine Corps, with the largest code-talking program, sent approximately 420 Navajo language speakers to help win the war in the Pacific theater. In Europe, Comanche code talkers participated in the D-Day invasion of Nazi-occupied France, as well as many of the major campaigns that crushed Hitler's Third Reich. 
For instance, during the Second World War, several Meskwaki Court talkers were assigned to the 168th Infantry, 34th Red Bull Division, and were sent to North Africa, where they participated in the attacks on fascist Italy under heavy shelling. Three of the men were captured and confined to Italian and German prison camps. Now, how did the Court talkers work? Court talkers typically worked in pairs. One would run the portable radio unit, and the second would relay and receive messages in the code language and translate them to and from English. In the Pacific, the work was particularly dangerous as the Japanese soldiers intentionally targeted radio men and officers. The code talkers were constantly on the move to evade these attacks. And what was the code like? Returning to the 29 Navajo code talkers in the U.S. Marine Corps, the first code they created, called Type 1, had Navajo terms for the English letters. The Navajo word for ant, volachi, was used to represent the letter A in English. Bela sana, the Navajo word for apple, and tse nil, the word for axe, were also used to represent the letter A. O was tlochin, or onion, and so on. These letters were used to then create words in the code. After developing this Type 1 code, they developed Type 2 code with 211 English words translated to Navajo, later expanded to 411 English words. They had to be creative. Since there was no Navajo word, for instance, for submarine, the code talkers agreed to use the term Beshlo, which translates to iron fish. In spite of their contributions, American Indian code talkers couldn't even tell their family members about their communications work. Since the codes that they developed remained unbroken, the U.S. military wanted to keep the program classified just in case they were ever needed again. The World War II Code Talker program was declassified in 1968, and yet the recognition was slow in coming, even during the 1970s and 1980s. Only in 2002 were congressional gold medals given to the Navajo and other Code Talkers. This is episode 36 of the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast, and it's the season finale of season two of the podcast. Act four, stuck inside the US. If you have never been an immigrant in the US, you might be unaware of the immigration experiences and travails that your immigrant colleagues are currently going through or have been through. And your colleagues may never talk about it, so you wouldn't know. If you were or are an immigrant, however, you will very likely identify with many of the elements of the story I'm about to narrate. Now, you may have heard our last episode titled Anonymous, that's episode 15, which was a season finale of season one. If you haven't done so, it's got three amazing anonymous stories. Check it out. Anyway, in episode 15, we presented the story of Antonio, an anonymous story, an individual who was stuck outside the U.S. waiting for his visa stamp to be issued and renewed. However, immigrants can also be stuck inside the U.S., unable to work. That's today's story. This is a true story, and Sarah, whose story it is, is a real person. The name has been changed. This experience occurred in the late 2010s. For anonymity, all names and places have been changed in the story. 
Today, we discuss the story of Sarah, a legal immigrant in the U.S., who had just finished her PhD degree at a major university. Sarah had already accepted a job offer to start teaching at another big university all the way across the country. Her first job in the U.S. She was excited. She did a thorough apartment search and found a great place to stay. She packed up her bags at her alma mater city, said long goodbyes to her friends from nearly the half decade of her PhD, and then left to drive across the country. Except there was just one problem. You see, if you're an immigrant transitioning from a student visa to work, you need to be authorized by the USCIS, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Service. No problems, says the USCIS. You do not need to wait the many years that it takes to get an H-1B visa, that's the work visa. You can start work right away after on your student F-1 visa itself. There's just one catch. You have to apply for what's called an Employment Authorization Document, or in short, an EAD card. Once you get your EAD card in the mail, the physical card, you're allowed to work up to one year on it. So the students who graduate with a PhD have to carefully time when they apply for the EAD card, since the EAD card is valid for only one year after it's been issued for student F1 visa holders. So you try to guess the processing time for the EAD card application processing, which is typically a few months, and then you time your application submission just right so that you get your EAD card right before the start date of your new job. Again, this contrasts to American citizens who might be defending their PhDs who can pretty much defend any time they like. For immigrant computer scientists and immigrants in any stream defending their PhDs, the timing has to be just right. Anyway, returning to Sarah's story, Sarah was smart. She defended her PhD successfully, yay, and also timed her EAD application perfectly. She got a notice just before she started her move across the country that the EAD card was on its way in the mail. Great. So far, so good. We are set. A week later, the EAD card had not arrived. Sarah was already at her new employer's city, settled in her new apartment, getting her lessons ready for her new course. It was only two weeks before the start of the semester. You see, your new employer cannot pay you or even allow you to start working unless you show them the EAD card, the physical EAD card. Online authorization, email authorization, all of that is great, but legally an employer needs the physical EAD card. Sarah checked with the USCIS and they said that they had mailed the card. Never mind, thought Sarah, it's probably just delayed in the mail. There's still one week before the semester starts. Sarah continued preparing her lessons for her new course. She was excited to finally be a professor, to be teaching her own class, her own job, her own office. Except she didn't have her office yet because, well, no EAD card yet. One day before the semester was about to start and she had to start teaching no EAD card. Still time left, thought Sarah. Now, the U.S. Postal Service is a generally amazingly great and rarely loses letters, especially important immigration letters, right? Well, the USCIS likes to send out important immigration documents from EAD cards to green cards by regular mail, perhaps so as not to have them stolen by opportunistic folks. Who knows? But this also means that the important Immigration documents are treated by the U.S. Postal Service 
just like any other regular mail. Now, recently, the USCIS has started using document tracking, but this has not always been the case. And in any case, it's not overnight shipping. Well, the starting day of the semester came and went at Sarah's new employer. Sarah had still not received her EAD card. She didn't know it, but her travails were just starting. Her lessons were ready. The students were already attending classes, except Sarah wasn't teaching her class. Her colleagues were filling in for her. Sarah was stuck at home, legal in every sense of an immigrant in the U.S., but still unemployed by her new employer, unable to go into work, unable to teach, unable to really do anything. Because when immigration limbo occupies your mind, few other things can be in there. It completely consumes you. Suddenly, Sarah received an online notice that the mail with her EAD card had been, quote, sent back, unquote, by the U.S. Postal Service. There had been an issue with the delivery address. Sarah didn't quite know what exactly the issue was. She couldn't imagine what it might be. Anyway, no problem, thought Sarah. The good news is that the EAD card is at least not lost in the mail. It's there. It's on its way back. So we'll just ask the USCIS to send the EAD card again in the mail. Uh, Not so fast. When Sarah called the USCIS, they said that the USCIS has a rule that if a card is returned in the mail and never delivered, then it is essentially voided, meaning that if the applicant still desires the EAD card, they have to apply all over again and again wait the many months that it takes to process the EAD card application. Sarah figured that if she did that, by that time the academic year might completely be finished, and her one-year position after her PhD may also be finished, and she may be out of status. It was all just very confusing for her. Now, this was already October, the middle of the fall semester. Sarah was at home, on the verge of tears nearly every day, unable to work, unable to do anything else, unable to even petition the USCIS for anything because the EAD card was still on its way back to the USCIS. Her only option, one that she could take action on, was to return to her home country outside the U.S. But Sarah didn't want to do that. She wanted to teach in the U.S. Sarah's colleagues at her new employer were kind enough to step in and teach her class on her behalf. But that's not what Sarah wanted. Sarah wanted to be the one teaching. Now, when you're stuck on an immigration issue, reportedly the only persons who are authorized to get an answer from the USCIS about such cases are the local congressperson and the two senators from your state. As you can imagine, getting through to these offices is not easy, let alone getting them to act on your behalf, you being an immigrant, a non-citizen. It can take weeks or months or years of waiting for these offices to be convinced that this case is out of the ordinary enough for them to reach out to the USCIS. And even when they do reach out to the USCIS, they cannot really intervene. No action may happen if they don't push hard, and sometimes action doesn't happen even if they push hard. It was at this point that a close friend of Sarah, a U.S. citizen, stepped in, and the friend decided to approach the office of the U.S. House representative anyway in the district where Sarah's PhD university was, her alma mater. What's the harm, thought the friend, let's just try this. Sarah's PhD advisor was kind enough to write a letter to the U.S. representative begging them to intervene on behalf of Sarah. Sarah's friend visited the U.S. representative's office multiple times to hand in the petitions, to ask the office, to query, to intervene. Normally, you don't get to meet the U.S. representative whenever you want. 
And anyway, the representative doesn't do much. Their staff does most of the important work. On one of these visits, Sarah's friend, now doing a lot of legwork on her behalf, chatted with one of the staff members in the U.S. representative's office. The staff member said that they knew someone at the USCIS and that they would just try calling them the next day. Sarah's friend left the office, not hopeful about this at all, and really not sure of what they could try next. The next day, Sarah received an email from the USCIS saying her EAD card had been received and, quote, resent, unquote, to her. A few days later, Sarah received an envelope in the mail. She opened it and voila, inside was her EAD card, the long-lost one that had just been resent by the USCIS. It was late in the fall semester, or was it early spring semester? Anyway, Sarah had lost track of time. And the important thing was that Sarah was now able to get back on track to teach. With her new EAD card in hand, Sarah rushed to her new employer's building and HR office with her books and lesson material clutched under her arm, ready to teach, ready to roar, ready to be the teacher that she could have been and should have been months ago. Except for all those delays and except for arcane USCIS rules. That's the story of Sarah. She's still in the US. She's still teaching. This was episode 36 of the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast. You've heard some personal thoughts, a story of Native American code talkers, and an anonymized story of immigration travails. Earlier this season, in season two, we have visited six countries and heard the stories of legendary and prominent American computer scientists who grew up in different parts of the world. India, Israel, Moldova, Romania, Mexico, and Chile. If you haven't already done so, you can listen to their episodes and their stories in their entirety. Episodes 24 through 26 with India. Episodes 27 through 29 with Israel. Episode 30 with Moldova and Israel. Episodes 31 through 33 with Romania, episode 34 in Mexico, and episode 35 with Chile. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes from the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast as we visit other parts of the world. As usual, you can find all episodes and detailed episode guides on our website, csimmigrant.org. Again, that's csimmigrant.org. And you can find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. All the music used in episodes of the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast is royalty-free. All voice recordings were performed with and are reproduced with full consent of narrators and participants. You can find music credits on our website. Join the online discussion about this podcast on all major social media, including Twitter and Facebook, with the handle CSImmigrant and hashtag CSImmigrant. And of course, the episode guide is available at our website, csimmigrant.org. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast.